Hello and welcome to Screen Cleaning. My name is Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wessinger. We're here each and every week right here on BYU Radio. You can download our podcast or just look them up on byuradio.org. Or Sirius XM channel 143. Wherever you get your podcasts, I, I think we're even uh, broadcasting by Tin Can. Usually. Also, yeah. If you're within about an arm's length of where we're sitting right now. Right. <laughs> We're here each and every week to give you the very best in entertainment, and we like to start off the show by giving you the very best in entertainment news. Now, it's no secret that in just about a week and a half, two weeks here, we're going to get season three of Stranger Things, and people are so excited. And we're two of those people. Of course we are. Yes, that music just gives me the chills. This is event television at its best. And uh, we're going to be getting some great 80s nostalgia in the form of Carrie Elwes, who is, I believe he's the mayor of the town in Indiana. But, you know, if you can't get enough of Stranger Things... Or 80s nostalgia. Right, because there's only going to be like 10 episodes of season three. What you want to do... If they come out July 4th, I think by July 5th, I'm going to be craving my next Stranger Things addiction. We'll just go back and and start from the beginning. Okay. Uh, What you want to do is you'll want to look online or go to the stores. I'm not exactly sure where it's going to be sold. But Nike is coming out with a Stranger Things line of shoes. Now, these are supposed to be basically a modern take on shoes from 1985. And I got to say, Cole, these look pretty hip. I definitely, there are two or three pairs of these that I for sure want to get. I want to get these bright red shoes and these high top shoes with with the Nike logo down the side. Oh. Is nothing sacred anymore? Even our shoes have to have TV tie-ins nowadays. Hey, hey, what you know, Cole? What's what's the matter? Are you not a Nike fan? I I don't. I'm just. I guess I'm not a shoes fan. And I looked at these shoes. They just look like Nikes nowadays. Anyway, you're wearing a pair of Nikes right now. And how could you not be a shoe fan when I feel like every time I see you, you've got a different pair of shoes, and they're all cooler than every pair of shoes that I have. And I do wear shoes every day. So I guess we're all shoes fans in that way. Well, uh, yeah, maybe begrudgingly so. I think there are some people in this world that if they could never wear shoes again, that would be A-OK with them. But the rest of us are glad that yes. they do. Stranger Things is coming to Netflix, as we mentioned, in July. Something coming to Hulu also in July is a Veronica Mars Reboot again? Is uh, Kristen Bell going to be in this one? Mm-hmm. She is. It's just an eight-episode revival, is okay. all. But in preparation for that eight-episode new stuff coming out at the beginning of July, we're going to get all the other three seasons of Veronica Mars to Hulu as well. Plus the movie that they came out with. Do you know if that'll Ooh, be released? Not sure. Man, they're they're probably going to come out with a Veronica Mars Nike next. Hopefully. (laughs) Maybe Adidas or Puma would be more interesting. Oh, okay. All right. So that's coming out uh, when again on Hulu? It'll be later in July that the new episodes come out. But July 1st is where we get to binge the other three seasons before you get uh, ready for this new one. (sighs) There's just too much, Cole. There's too much TV, too many movies to watch. Why not take a break on social media? That's what Justin Bieber did a couple weeks ago. (gasps) That's right. Oh, my goodness. 
Wow. Justin Bieber, um, we we didn't talk about this at the time just because we had other news to talk about, but it, it was a slow news week. And so we want to mention that Justin Bieber wanted to challenge Tom Cruise to a fight in the octagon on Twitter. Why? Why Tom Cruise? Why Justin Bieber? Well, why pick a why fight? Why a fight? Yeah. What? What? I don't get it. Why would you? Tom Cruise is like the biggest action star of our time. Does his own stunts. It's not like you're challenging someone that's just some frail actor. Wow. I, I saw a funny tweet that somebody posted. Uh, they responded to Justin Bieber by saying, okay, but if you lose, you've got to become a Scientologist. <laughs> <laughs> Have a little friendly wager on the line. The funniest part of this was the reactions from other people. For example, Brent Spiner of Star Trek fame, yes. which I always love, tweeted uh, afterwards, I would like to challenge Angela Lansbury to fight me in the octagon, <laughs> and then went on to make fun of the rest of the tweet. Dick Van Dyke then chimes in on Twitter. Who knew these old people had Twitter? Yeah. I didn't. I love it that they do. I will defend the honor of Dame Lansbury for free. The pier at sundown. Be there if you dare. <laughs> Brent replies, I give up. Dick Van Dyke uh, replies, Brent spineless. <laughs> And then wow. they keep jabbing back and my forth goodness. via Twitter. That was my highlight. It made me smile. Those are so much better than the Justin Bieber, Tom Cruise tweets. Like, just push all those aside. I just want to hear more riffing between Brent Spiner and, and Dick, Dick Van, Van Dyke. Dyke. What an odd On pairing. Twitter. <laughs> yeah. My goodness. So is there any anything that indicated that, you know, here's why... Justin Bieber is upset with Tom Cruise? or Not is he that we just... could find. And then he just took it back and said, ah, oh, I was just kidding. Of course he ah. was kidding. Also a fun tidbit of this, um, Tom Cruise is spry for his age. Yes. But Tom Cruise is 31 years older. I think he could than Justin Bieber. win. If I was going to pick a fight with someone 31 years older than me, I uh, did a little research. I'd be fighting someone like George Lopez okay. or maybe Eddie Murphy George Clooney, I think, could still hold his own. Cole, I, mm, it's not Ralph looking, Macchio, the Karate Kid. It's, it's not look well. I you, challenge you him to, to the octagon. You might be able to beat Ralph Macchio, but those others, I, I don't know if you're coming out of that one alive. Interesting. Wow, thirty-one years older than me. That would be who'd you be picking a fight with? Sixty-seven-year-olds. Wow. That'd be like Betty White in the first iteration of Golden Girls, right? Okay. Yeah, I could take her. Yeah, Couldn't take her now, though. She's gotten stronger <laughs> no, with age. No, she is. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, speaking of getting stronger with age, a lot of people have been super skeptical about a movie that's coming out this weekend. So, Cole, here's how I'm, what I'm going to equate this to. Let's say you're, you're saying a very heartfelt goodbye to somebody you really care about and, you know, tears are shed maybe, and who knows when you're going to see them again, right? You assume never. Right. You say goodbye, and then like five minutes later, like you see them in the bathroom, and it's super awkward. Not just because you've seen them in the bathroom, but because I already used up my good goodbye five minutes ago, so now I don't really know what to say to you, right? And now the last thing you remember is just saying, uh, see ya. Yeah. So this is kind of the feeling that you might have going into Toy Story 4. However, I can oh put your mind at ease. It is so enjoyable. It is such a high-quality sequel. 
And I'm predicting it's going to be the best family slash kids movie of the year. However, I will say right off the bat, you're going to compare this goodbye to the goodbye from Toy Story 3. And when you start doing that, at least for me, I, if I'm honest with myself, I still preferred the goodbye from Toy Story 3. So they still make kind of a grand gesture at the end of this movie. Right. And... You, you kind of feel like at the end of this movie, you're kind of, you're kind of getting two different versions. This is kind of like the alternate version of Toy Story 3, mm. um, but I still prefer Toy Story 3. However, they have made some amazing additions in terms of new toys. You have, speaking of Keanu Reeves, you have Duke Kaboom, who, well, first of all, is a great name, voiced by Keanu Reeves, and he's got some great one-liners in it. You've got Kean Peel voicing the this uh, little uh, stuffed duck and a stuffed bunny. They're little carnival prizes. Right, carnival prizes that are kind of uh, fighting for their real estate space there on the carnival wall. And then you also get to see some familiar faces. Now, if you remember Toy Story 3, you notice that there was no Bo Peep. So you find out why there's no Bo Peep in Part 3. And uh, she represents a uh, very difficult decision that Woody has to make later on in the movie. Mm. But basically the plot of the movie revolves around this new toy that their new owner, Bonnie, makes in quotation mark, actually makes in preschool, which is this spork with googly eyes and the uh, little pipe cleaner arms who thinks this entire time that he's just trash, which if you're an adult, you're looking at this thing thinking, yeah, that's just trash. When can we throw this away? However, the ever loyal Woody, loyal to a fault, one might say, spends the whole time trying to rescue Forky, from all these sticky situations because at that at the time Forky is the most important toy in Bonnie's life. And so Woody has a heart of gold. And he's learned, I mean, remember, Woody started off as the bad guy, really, in Toy Story right. 1 because he was so jealous. And, and he came to realize that it's Andy, it's Bonnie, it's these kids that matter. And what's important to them at the time is important to them. And so it's great that we've had that growth over the course of four movies. You know, there are some amazing gags in this film. Some might argue that this could very well be the funniest of the Toy Story films. We all know that Toy Story 3 ended things so nicely, but uh, even though you run into that person again and you've already given them your good goodbye, there's still plenty more that you can say to them and more memories that you can make with them. And they're still your friend. You've got a friend in me, Cole. There we go. Toy Story 4 is so good. It's it's going to make you want to go back and watch the original trilogy and you know what? Sometimes we watch films and they're so good that we want to go and read the books that the movies are based on. And that's good in my eyes. Anything that can get you into books is fantastic. We're going to share some of those examples with you when we return here on Screen Cleaning. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. Love movies. You ever talk about a movie with someone that happens to have read the book? 
They're always so condescending. Uh, the book was much better. <laughs> oh, really? What I enjoyed about the movie? No reading. <laughs> yeah. It only took two hours, and then I could take a nap. That was Jim Gaffigan poking a little bit of fun at people who prefer the book over the movie. And uh, we played that because we're actually going to be talking about that in a way today here on Screen Cleaning. You know, so often people will read the book prior to seeing the movie, and often they're disappointed. But there are also instances where people's first experience to this story is through the movie. And they enjoy the movie sometimes so much that it puts them in books. their curiosity, maybe. It gets them reading again. And that, my friend, is a good thing. Anytime somebody stops what they're doing, takes a moment to just slow down, open up a book, feel that paper between their fingers, and have that, that wonderful accomplishing feeling of turning a page... It's seriously, I, I feel very accomplished whenever I read a book or even a chapter in a book. I mostly listen to audiobooks, so I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, well, I do both. So, uh, Shazam. Okay. I don't, I don't think that's a, a quip, but... It anyway. is a comic book. <laughs> that trailer looks pretty funny, actually. Oh, I'm ready. I, I couldn't help but think of the movie Big when I saw that trailer. As you should. But anyway, we digress. So here's what we're going to do, Cole. You and I each have three picks and maybe an honorable mention or two mm-hmm. As uh, always. for movies that made us want to read. Yes. So I'm going to start by by doing a book that's probably not one that people have read. However, more than likely, they have seen one of the versions of this story. The story is The Body Snatchers by Jack ah. Finney. So Jack Finney also wrote a couple of other stories that you might be familiar with, one of which is called Time and Again and From Time to Time. It's this time-traveling love story. But The Body Snatchers involves what is now known in popular culture as pod people, right? These aliens <laughs> that come down from outer space – These uh, mysterious seedlings grow into these bigger pods, and while you sleep, uh, these pods or these uh, exact replicas of you come out and take over your body, and they're the exact same person as you, same memories, same blemishes, um, uh, but the only thing is they can't experience love or feelings. Aww. So... They're, this, they're the real tragedy of the story then. Right. It's kind of like the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Don't fall asleep. Playing on people's fears of falling asleep. Then, of course, they made these uh, several movies. The one in 1956 where they play on people's fear of McCarthyism and like, oh, anybody could be a communist. It could be you. It could be your next door neighbor. It could be your milkman. And you would never know because they look like regular people, Right. My favorite version of this film is Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1978 version with – listen to this cast. These three people alone is enough to sell you on watching the movie. Jeff Goldblum. Oh, yeah. Donald Sutherland. Oh, yeah. 
Leonard Nimoy? Oh, yeah. Yes, that cast alone is worth watching. And this is the film that really got me interested in reading the book. And I'm so glad that I did because Jack Finney is an author that I feel like a lot of people have forgotten about or have never even heard of in the first place. And it's a shame because his writing is top-notch. And he's able to give you this really suspenseful story. Any story like this, I'm a fan of where it's basically one person versus the world, right? There, of course, were a couple of other versions, one in 1993 called simply Body Snatchers, which I've never seen. And then one in 2007 starring Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman called The Invasion. I personally liked it. It has a 19% on Rotten Tomatoes, but the 78 version is the one to see, in my opinion. And like I said, it did the great thing of getting me into books. It sounds like they have no other ways to spin that title into anything different. They've used the invasion. They've used the body snatchers part. They've used the whole thing. They've... Uh, If there's a fifth movie, what are they calling it, Jeff? Maybe they could... uh, Maybe it could go back to like... The movies of Frank Whale, you know, I think I'm getting that name right, the Frankenstein guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe it'll be like Body of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yes. Or Son of the Invasion. Son of, yeah, there it or, is. Or Bride, of, of, Bride mm-hmm. of the Body Snatchers. The Curse of the Body Snatchers. Yes. There's, there's plenty of iterations. The Body right, Snatchers we'll Returns. <laughs> Okay, Cole, what's your first pick? So I'm going to start with the most juvenile of my of the literacy merits of the movies of, that were based on the books that have literacy merit. Um, I'm going to start with the most juvenile and work my way up. So in the summer, right after, right around the time I graduated, I was reading a lot of young adult fiction because I myself was a young adult. Now, sure. young adult fiction is somewhat of a misnomer because it's always about teenagers, right? not actually young adults in their 20s. But Mm -hmm. I went to see a movie about some teenagers with special powers because that's a favorite among the young adult narrative. I think I know where this is going. And it was called I Am Number Four. Really? It wasn't a great movie. And it's probably not a great book because all those books follow a similar narrative. But I want to talk about this movie in a in a movies that made us want to read context because up until this point in my life, I had done a lot of reading. I had read the Hunger Games, the Divergent series, Harry Potter, a bit of Twilight. I'm not afraid to admit that. I think I've heard of those books. Well, this was my, we've established I'm a little bit younger than you. Sure. Um, My generation, I was reading all of those before I went to the movies. But this movie, playing in a double feature with something else that I actually wanted to watch, I got to see this same kind of young adult story that was based on a book that I hadn't read yet. Hmm. So as I was watching, I was thinking to myself, you know, he's doing the voiceover, kind of explaining the world. And I thought, you know what? That's probably way more interesting in the book. Oh, this is the place where they're skipping over things. Oh, this was probably a better character in the book. Like all these moments that I was used to complaining about because I had read the books and I was that guy that thought the books were always better. I got to see a movie based on a book that I hadn't read yet. And And I still could see the places where the movie makers were taking their liberties or I thought, you know what? This is probably just as good of a book as all those other ones. It's got a movie out of it. Um, (laughs) It had to be good, right? It had to be at least a little bit. People had to have read it. But I could tell where it was missing those things where normally as a book reader, I would be the one complaining. Hmm. Interesting. I am number four. Okay, so don't see the movie, but maybe read the book. Well, and so up until this point, I thought coming home from the movie theater, I want to read that book. 
and I still haven't. And now I'm probably a little bit old to read about teen drama superpower things. But it it did make me think this book, I understand. I understand what's going on now to all the people that just watched the movie without reading the book. I understand their plight when they're missing out on things. Okay, Cole. Well, to be fair to our listeners, we may have to do a follow-up show where you actually have read I Am Number Four. It wouldn't be. Uh, <laughs> I, could, I could embrace my inner teenager for a second and do that for you. So I like that pick because uh, what I gleaned from from your description of that movie is that sometimes – what we can imagine is so much better than what we see on the screen. Yes. That's not necessarily the case for my next pick. My next pick is a very well-known movie and book. But it had to be on my list because this is the film that really uh, sparked this topic for me. This is the one that, thought, that, that made me think we ought to do a topic on this. And it is the Jurassic Park franchise. So we just had the release of uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Good. I had to think about that for a minute. And we, we've both established that nothing really comes close to the original movie. But this one was not bad as far as entertaining you and giving you a good laugh about how ridiculous the series has become. And it really made me pine for the original Jurassic Park movie and the original Jur- Jurassic Park book, which I have read. And the reason I mentioned sometimes the imagination is better than what is actually on screen is because sometimes you actually don't see something on screen. And so you have to imagine, right? Steven Spielberg did a really good job taking books and putting them to film because he didn't lose out on that. Right. So there's a scene in the book movie. I don't think I'm spoiling anything by mentioning that... Spoiling this 25-year-old movie? Sure. Samuel L. Jackson's character, Arnold, I think it's John Arnold, dies. He (gasps) goes out to this utility shed where he's going to turn on all the power and basically do a, a fresh reboot. And... We never see him make that journey. Well, it turns out the reason for that is because... There was a hurricane, a tropical storm in Hawaii where the movie set was that just destroyed everything. And it wasn't safe. They couldn't get Samuel L. Jackson over there to film the scene. So they it just was, became an off-screen death. Okay. However, if you read the book, you know what happens to his character. You go – you travel with him into the utility shed – He uses his shoe to prop open the door so that there can be light in the room because, remember, there's no power. Right. And he's going toward the the breaker or whatever you would call it. And all of a sudden, it's completely dark (gasps) in this control room. Oh, no. And he turns around and blocking the natural light is a velociraptor. Dum, dum, dum. Another thing I love about this book is that it's perfect for people like me who love short chapters and need that sense of accomplishment. Because if you read a short chapter, it doesn't matter how short it was, you think to yourself, I read a chapter, an entire chapter I read. But he goes beyond that. Not only are the chapters short, but the chapters are like they they constantly are changing perspective. So you have like a little chunk of of uh, of the book in 
Arnold's uh, coming from Arnold's perspective. Then you go back to uh, the Hammond character. Then you switch over to the Ian Malcolm character. So it's just kind of all over the place, and it just really makes you feel like an accomplished reader, and it's quite thrilling and enjoyable. So I can relate to that a little bit because this next book that I want to talk about, when I was reading it through audiobook means, Mm -hmm. he wasn't telling me when another chapter started. So I just had to kind of rely on when he paused for a little bit longer than normal to think, okay, I can pause here. But I never never got that dopamine rush of accomplishment because he never told me, we're starting a new chapter now. And so it was distracting. I understand that. Now I'm curious. The next book and movie, though, that I would like to talk about is a little bit older. So now I'm not a teenager anymore. I'm trying to find a good adult book for me to read. And I go back and thinking, you know, what do what do adults read? And I remembered a movie that came out, two movies that came out in the late 2000s, called The Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons, based on ah, the novels yes. by Dan Brown. yes. I did not see these movies when they came out because it didn't seem like something that interested me. Okay. But because those movies existed and because we can admit the movies have a little bit more of a reach than books in popular culture, Mm -hmm. that's what made me want to read. Although these books are very popular. The the books are extreme and that's what got them into movie form in Mm -hmm. the first place. But for me, my first exposure was the fact that the movie existed. So when I was thinking, what book do I want to read now? I remembered those movies and wanted to read the book, even though I hadn't seen them, didn't know the quality or anything. So I read the books. Turns out, um, for people that are just relying on the movies like me, the Da Vinci Code movie came first. Angels and Demons, the book, came first. Whoa. So I started with Angels and Demons, the book, read that, and then watched the movie. So I knew of the movie, then read the book, then watched the movie. So I still read the book before I actually watched it, this like a good reader. This is confusing, Cole. It's, it makes sense to me. <laughs> okay. And I needed... I I like to read the book before I watch the movie, but the movie existing is what gave me the exposure and knowledge of Dan Brown being the the accomplished adult author that he is. One thing I'll say about uh, The Da Vinci Code, I actually read – no, no, no. Yes, I read the book before the movie, which is rare for me. It's good right? of you. Here's the problem with the movie. It's not good. I did not like it, and the movie did – a great disservice to me because after watching the movie, it made me like the book even less. Aw. I, yeah, that's unforgivable because I really enjoyed the book at the time. All right, Cole, this one I'm super excited about because I'm sure very few of our listeners have read this book or even knew that this movie was based on a book. And this pick is a little different from my other picks in that I didn't like this movie. I did not like it. I used to be a huge Jim Carrey fan, and I still get quite a bit of joy going back and watching some of his old classics. It's funny to say classics and Jim Carrey in the same sentence, but I just said it. There you go. He made a film called Yes Man, and the film is about this guy who is either separated or divorced from his wife. He's kind of depressed, and he turns down all these invitations from his friends to go hang out. He's kind of a no-man, if you will, Mm. right? Well, he finds out about this seminar that is all about saying yes to life, saying yes to everything, and he takes it quite literally, and he says yes to every invitation, every opportunity, uh, and 
kind of the mishaps and opportunities that that come up because of that new outlook on life, right? Well, the movie's quite crude, uh, not really that funny, and kind of a poor effort from Jim Carrey, I think. But I found out it was based on a book, and I thought, oh, if this is based on a real guy that decided for one year he was going to say yes to everything, it's got to be entertaining, right? Interesting, at least. And it was both, Cole. Interesting and entertaining is written by a man named Danny Wallace, who really did this for an entire year. He said yes to everything. So he took this challenge quite literally. Uh, and here, I want to give you the synopsis of this book. It's uh, this, I got this from Amazon. Basically, for an entire year, Danny Wallace lived as if the word no did not exist. Here's what happened. He won $45,000. Whoa. Met the world's only hypnotic dog. <laughs> earned a nursing degree and traveled the globe. And those are just some of the really wacky examples that you'll find in this book. I'm trying to think back to the last time someone asked me, would you like to get a nursing degree? Or would you like to travel the globe? To which I would have had to say yes. And it hasn't happened to me. You know, and there are plenty of books that you can find out there about, you know, the power of no or the power of yes. Um, But it's, it's such an interesting exercise. I love books like this where somebody takes something to an extreme. Another example, they haven't made a movie out of this, but another example is um, the I think it's called the Red Paperclip Project or something where there's this game where you try to find something, you try to take something and exchange it for something oh, yeah. that's bigger or better, right? So The Office did this with their yard sale episode where oh, you I don't just remember trade – you start with something that's seemingly useless and valueless and you just trade it and try to trade up just a little bit each time to the point where you've essentially for free traded a paperclip for right. something of value. So this guy started with a red paperclip and ended up with a house. That was his goal from the beginning and he did it. Nice. It's amazing. So uh, that's another one I want to read. So what's your last pick, Cole? My last pick is the one whose book has the most literary merit. It's one that most people had to read in high school even and it's called The Great Gatsby. And the movie that made me want to read is the most recent one. But I think it's worth noting that before I read the book the first time in high school, I did watch the Mia Farrow, um, Robert Redford, 1970-something version of it. And I've even seen the Paul Rudd TV movie version as well as I was trying to slog my way through as a high schooler this book. But then I watched the 2013 version with Leonardo DiCaprio that really, really got the gilded ageness of the great Gatsby and put it onto screen in a way I had never seen before with kind of like modern music going on as well to capture a younger generation and give them an idea of what the jazz age was all about and this opulence and everything going on. And it made me want to go back and read a book that I vaguely remembered and I loved it. There is a reason that everyone is supposed to read this book in high school I think it's an amazing book, and I would never have gone back to revisit it after all those years and given it the credit that it's due for being one of America's masterpieces if it hadn't been for another movie coming out. So I've seen all three movies, but it's the most recent one that really inspired me to go back and read and to find what is now maybe one of my favorite books. I I really I love everything about The Great Gatsby. So, again... We're talking about movies that drove us to read, right, that we enjoyed so thoroughly or maybe we thought 
gosh, I hated the movie, but the the book sounds interesting. Uh, Forrest Gump is a movie I love, and I, it made me want to read the book. Right. I abandoned that very quickly. Uh, Jaws is one of my favorite movies of all time. The movie is way better than the book. Okay. Sorry, Mr. Jim Gaffigan. Uh, you mentioned a book that you're not really sure where the where the chapter ends and a new one begins. Right. A, a confusing author to read is Cormac McCarthy, who wrote No Country for Old Men. I saw the movie first, wanted to see, wanted to read the book. The book is almost identical to the movie, but he doesn't use punctuation, hmm. so it's it's kind of. Uh, Un, not unsettling, but it's it's kind of confusing. Like, oh, is the entire book like this? Is this just for one character? Nope, the entire book. I'm pretty sure for all of his books. But those are my honorable mentions. All right, so my honorable mentions would include Thor Ragnarok, which reminded for how much I disliked that movie, it was a crazy, bright, lit-up space adventure, which reminded me of Walt Simonson's run on the comic The Mighty Thor back mm-hmm. in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So because I didn't like that movie, I went back and found my my comfort zone, my safe place where I could just read comics and love Thor again. (laughs) Just see you in a corner in the fetal position after watching that movie. I was scarred. But then somebody puts the comic book in front of you and you're like, oh, I can I can breathe again. I'm clean. (laughs) Yes, that's more or less what happened. Okay. It, the TV movie, was one of my favorite horror movies, and I've talked about that before. It drove me to read, and I was very confused. Um, that is a book that I cannot in good conscience recommend to anyone because sure. it is a little too crazy. It's very Stephen Kingy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, The Bourne Legacy, which was the one that didn't have Matt Damon come back for Jason Bourne, was yes. also based on a book. But it wasn't Robert Ludham's books. So he had those three originally. If you look at the – the funny thing about this book though is that on the cover, the biggest thing on the cover is still Robert Ludham's name. Of course. And then the next biggest thing is The Bourne Legacy and then the actual author, Eric Van Lustbunder, (laughs) is a real small name at the bottom. But at the top it says, based on the characters by – Robert Ludham. I don't like it when books do that, when when they confuse you with the marketing. I just came across one just yesterday when I was doing some research for this because one of uh, my other honorable mentions could be Psycho, which I also prefer the movie to the book. Mm -hmm. But I just found out there's another book in the series, a fourth book that takes place between book one and book two, but of course not written by the original author Robert Block, who's passed away. Ugh, it's so confusing, and it's not right. Not right. They shouldn't try to confuse us that No, way. but they want to make money. So as you know, our mission here on Screen Cleaning is to shine a big old spotlight in all that is good. And we honestly don't talk enough about books, and I'm so glad that we did today because other than just entertaining us and helping us forget about some of our problems, maybe. One service that movies uh, perform for us is that movies make us want to read. And that is one of the most satisfying experiences that you can have in life, to pick up a book and read it cover to cover, to feel that paper and the ink in between your fingers. You really feel like a better person when you're reading, depending on what you're reading, of course. But uh, hopefully we've given you some ideas of, of books that you can pick up and have just a great read and 
a great couple of weeks or a couple of months, depending on how long it takes you to read that book and how many times. And how thick the book is. Right. Yeah. And how many times you have to renew it from your library. But there you have it. That is uh, our discussion on movies that make us want to read here on Screen Cleaning. book when the stories write themselves and it all comes alive you don't read the book the book reads you yet another example of a beloved happy song being used to scare the pants off us right somewhere over the rainbow where creepy things and people cry where there are scary stories to tell in the dark because that is from the film scary stories to tell in the dark you don't read the book the book reads you whoa That's uh, not a great line, but the visuals in this movie look quite good. Now, I wonder why the visuals in this movie look so amazing. Could it be because the illustrations from the book they take inspiration from are great themselves? Yes. Stephen Gamble is the name of that man responsible for the images that we're going to see in this movie that they are clearly take they're clearly uh, drawing from the books. Now, we've been as talking as creepy as they get. They're not going to get there. Those illustrations yeah. were amazing. Well, because your imagination is an amazing thing that can kind of fill in the blanks where the visuals kind of explain a little too much, right? Right. So, we've been talking this whole time about movies that make us want to go back and read the books. And I think they're going to experience a spike in the sales of scary stories to tell in the dark, not necessarily for the stories, but for the illustrations themselves. And that's kind of a a different twist on what we've been talking about. But for a lot of us growing up reading these stories, that's what we tend to remember the most is the illustrations from these books. And you said it already. I mean, the stories come and go in scary stories to tell in the dark, but those those illustrations that Stephen Gamble came out with, they're burned into your mind, and it's probably going to bring up a lot of happy or maybe scary memories <laughs> when you see this film when it comes out in August. They're at the very least iconic, and we mentioned during the course of our conversation, sometimes movies make us want to go back to the book's because the movies were disappointing. Hopefully that won't be the case for Scary Stories, but you mentioned your disappointment with the most recent Jurassic movies and how it made you want to go back to Michael Crichton's book. I, I'm i pretty disappointed with most of the direction that Dr. Seuss's movies have yeah. kind of gone recently because yeah. so much of the charm, I think it, it was held hand in hand, his weird way of doing words and his weird way of doing visuals and when illumination or these other cgi animators get a hold of those animations and kind of smooth them all over and make them just kind of look generic you lose so much of what made seuss seuss the lorax or horton here's a who any of these modern cgi uh, animated dr seuss movies i think miss out on so much of what made those books great yeah and uh, you know (sighs) I, this goes all the way back to my childhood with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory for me because 
Cole, I'm going to show you a picture of this book that I owned, and I, I believe I still own a copy of it. Not ah. the same one for my childhood, but Roald Dahl, if you'll notice, if you try to buy any of his any of, any of his books today, they're all going to have the same illustrations. And, you know, they're all fine and good for Roald Dahl. I can see why they decided to go with that illustrator as kind of, you know, to keep the continuity going with all these stories. Or maybe he had nothing to do with it. Maybe it was <laughs> just the, the publishers. But if you want what I think is the ultimate illustration for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you need to find the original, the first and revised version. And the illustrator was a man by the name of Joseph Schindelman. And the characters, are it's just all, it, it almost looks like these pencil sketch, sketches. They're not colored in at all. Charlie Bucket looks even more haggard and and just destitute than any of the other versions you might see. And they will burn into your mind as well. And just looking at the cover just makes you hungry. It's got this giant chocolate bar. and With you a can bite s- taken out of it. You can see all the details. In fact, that's the only thing that's colored in on it is this chocolate bar. And uh, I guess I like to imagine that I was the one that took that bite out of that chocolate bar. To and, taste what a Wonka bar really is. And it tasted amazing, or at least in my mind. So I mentioned Dr. Seuss, and he did his own illustrations for his books. J.R.R. Tolkien also illustrated the original version of The Hobbit. Really? All the, the little drawings that you see in the first edition were all him, but even more impressive than that to me because he himself admitted that he has his failings as an illustrator. He was an amazing world builder and author. He doesn't have to be perfect. But, sure. But the maps that are at the beginning and the end of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit were also drawn by J.R.R. Tolkien. I think that's so important because they were it was all in his mind. Like, nobody would know that better than him. Like, I can imagine being a prolific author and kind of giving a map drawer a rough sketch of what you want it to be and then adding cool, you know, in the Misty Mountains, they have, you know, the little mountain ranges. Yeah. But J.R.R. Tolkien added all those details and had that specific font that you associate with The Lord of the Rings. That is just how Tolkien drew it. And I associate, and again, with illustrations, we're we're now giving kind of some credence to the place where they, you know, were above or or so integral to the stories that also eventually became movies. Well, the movie trailer for scary tra- or scary trailers, scary stories in the dark, it worked because I'm diving back into the actual stories with the Stephen Gamble illustrations. So once again, we just want to say thank you, movies, for getting us. Back where we belong, and that's in books. Cole, I, I'm just so excited tonight to go home and start on the second Scary Story books, which is called More Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. What were your thoughts on the first one? The first one is good. Again, the I don't think the stories are as scary as the illustrations. <laughs> so I, I made a point of finding the books that had the original illustrations because there were some ad- different editions that came out that people were furious with because they didn't have the original illustrations. And for a lot of people, that's the scariest part. I will posit something to you. Um, a couple weeks ago, we did a show talking about different directors taking the helm. And we kind of tiptoed around Tim Burton and, and his crew making a new Hotel Transylvania. Do you think that Scary Stories?
stories to tell in the dark might have been apt for an animated movie to kind of mm. capture more of the creepy and otherworldliness of the illustrations? No, I really feel like putting it in the hands of of uh, not Benicio del Toro, Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo del Toro. I think that was probably a smart thing to do. And like I said, it it could be good. I hope it's not bad. But the director they chose for this film, uh, he's got a string of fresh movies. If you go by Rotten Tomatoes, so that could also be a very good thing. And the mind of Guillermo del Toro has yes. also given us Pan's Labyrinth and The Devil's Backbone and, and a lot of these – and Hellboy and even even in just um, The Shape of Water, which was kind of an Academy Award winning movie and, and kind of taken more seriously. He even had cool real-life visuals in that too. So yeah, if, if anyone's going to bring this to live action, I'm glad that Guillermo del Toro is in the room. Well, I'm excited and as I said, I am predicting a spike – in the sales of scary to- scary stories to tell in the dark once this film comes out. The book. Right. Well, when we return, we are going to continue our big summer movie leaderboard discussion. Find out who is closer to being right, who's going to owe Jeff some popcorn, or who's going to owe Cole some pizza. That's up next on Screen Cleaning. Ah, there's something so comforting about that sound, but then I realize it means we have to talk about our summer movie leaderboard, which makes me a little anxious and nervous that I might lose this little wager that Cole and I have going on. The music is comforting, but our predictions are anything but. Right. And really, I feel like these the the movies that are being released we're just getting ready for Toy Story 4 to come out. I think that's the lesson of of what we're seeing with these numbers coming in. Let's start right there. So yeah. you started the show with a review of Toy Story 4. We need to remind the folks at home that Jeff also predicted that Toy Story 4 would be the biggest box office earner domestically of the summer. I stand by that, although I don't know why, because I've been wrong about everything else so far. But it is, I mean, Toy Story is going to make a ton of money, more than any of the films that are currently on the top 10 list. Can you agree with that, Cole? I I hope to agree with it, because I also predicted it to be up there. I said it would be number two, just short of Lion King, but definitely more than Pokemon and John Wick and... Even Men in Black that came out last weekend. Man. Now, Cole, again, I'm going to have to ask you to go see Men in Black International so that I can be right. Because I think... It turns out, looking at our actual predictions, I was higher on Men in Black than you were. Really? Yes, I do need to go see it. I predicted it would be seven. You said it would be eight. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, I guess then maybe I shouldn't go see it again. And just by way of filling in the folks at home, some other movies that are yet to come out this summer that we're still looking forward to being on our each, our top tens, Spider-Man Far From Home coming out 4th of July weekend, Lion King is still to come out, and Fast and Furious Hobbs and Shaw. 
Yes. Still hasn't seen theaters yet either. We're hoping each one of those make their way to the top 10 to kick out things like The Intruder and Ma, which are still kind of hanging in there. Do you think Ma is the name of the movie or do you think it was – I'm surprised there wasn't some reviewer out there that was like, what do you think of the movie? Ma. Ma. <laughs> well, but I'm... it was Blumhouse, so it made money. Remember, this is box office totals domestic, not just return on investment. If we right. were doing what were the most profitable movies of the summer, Annabelle Comes Home, which I'm looking forward to coming out next weekend, would also be up there. But just raw box office numbers, eh, probably not. So if you're keeping score at home, Aladdin still has the number one spot. But I really don't think it'll stay there, especially with movies like Toy Story 4. But the thing that I am excited about, Cole, is the fact that when all is said and done, we're probably going to have at least two Keanu Reeves films in the top 10 of the summer blockbusters. And that's exciting. Because Toy Story counts. Just before we leave this box office discussion, we do want to give a little bit of time to the movie that came out last week that we have some numbers on. Men in Black underperformed a little bit, but I guess expectations were kind of corrected to to kind of account for that. But I want to talk about the other Men in Black movies at the box office as well. Normally, if you're trying to build a franchise and if you're still making movies in 2019, it's because each movie makes more money. Even if critical reception sometimes goes down on these movies, box office can reliably go up. Not the case with the Men in Black franchise. Not the case. Even not adjusting for inflation, and if you do, it gets worse. Men in Black, the first one, made the most. In 1997, even the raw numbers from there, it had $250 million. U.S. domestically? Domestic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, I remember that being such a huge movie, and to this day, it's still a fun movie to go back and watch. It also opened... At $51 million. Men in Black 2 did open slightly higher, but during the course of it run, its run, it only made $190 million. Only $190 million. That movie was a turkey. But it opened to $52 million. Men in Black 3 opened to $54 million, but then only made $179 during the course of its entire run. Mm. So total earnings have been going down, but that opening weekend's been going up. Unfortunately, Men in Black International... Did not get that plus $50 million opening weekend, and so it can only be doom and gloom for the rest of its run, I think. Unless it has an incredible word of mouth. Uh, so, Cole, go see it. Thanks for that word from your <laughs> mouth, Jeff. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, this uh, my summer uh, is quickly going down in flames, as are my hopes of getting a free popcorn from Cole. But I think one of us has to be the winner. And so if we both do terrible, we can just say that one of us was better and one of us is still a winner. And the other would be in second place. Hmm. All right. Well, I guess that's something. Anyway, we'll continue to take a look at the summer blockbuster uh, box office numbers all throughout the summer. Sometime during the summer, we'll decide what the heck this is even called. Right. (laughs) It's a scoreboard of something about the box office, something our competition, something something money. But one thing we do know the name of is panning for good. There's good in them dire hills. Today we put a little bit of a twist on the discussion of 
It, which is better, the book or the movie? We're not. We didn't decide any of that on the show. But, Jim Gaffigan has his opinions, but we're right. leaving it more open. Right. We are mainly interested in today the movies or shows that got us back into the books. And I want to share another example with you. I didn't know this until recently, but apparently Nickelodeon came out with, in the mid-2000s, came out with an adaptation of the sideways stories from Wayside School uh, books by Lewis Sacker. Interesting. And the show was just called Wayside, and it was an animated series that lasted a couple of seasons. I personally didn't see that in my mind as an animated series. I guess I can see why they did that because it's it's kind of a mixture of dark humor, silly stories, uh, maybe a little more sentimental stories. Well, and the mystical. Whole, the whole plot of it is that. Uh, on accident, instead of being a school that's one story high with 200 or whatever rooms going across, it was one room across but 200 or whatever stories high. So I can see how that animation would be slightly easier than, you know, practically building a set that could accomplish that. That is a good point, Cole. Um, however, after watching the series, it really just made me want to go back and read the stories again. And so much so that I've been reading them with my daughter, actually, and she loves them. It's perfect for any young reader or anybody like me that has a short attention span where every chapter is a short story. So it's an anthology, really, because you're just getting a little piece of this overall story a little bit at a time. Uh, You kind of get a picture, and each chapter, at least in the first one, the title of each chapter is the name of a character. So the first one in the very first book is Mrs. Gorf. So you get to find all about find out all about Mrs. Gorf. And then you have all the different kid character names and the, the little adventures that they have. Little bite-sized stories that you can dig into yourself or with your kids. And I suggest you do both. If scary stories to tell in the dark is a little too scary for your taste, right. try the sideways stories from Wayside School. Absolutely. And you won't even be scared You'll just end up a little sideways at the end. Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode of Screen Cleaning. We are here each and every week. You can find our podcast either on byuradio.org or really wherever podcasts are found. If you're a podcast person, we're all over the place. Right. We're the show that's all about shining a big old spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. A little show we like to call Screen Cleaning.